This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Myron Magnet was the editor of City Journal from 1994 to 2006, and he is now the magazine's editor-at-large. A former member of the Board of Editors of Fortune magazine, he was awarded a National Humanities Medal by President George W. Bush in 2008. He has written about a wide variety of topics from American society and social policy, economics, and corporate management to intellectual history, literature, architecture, and the American founding. His latest book is The Founders at Home, The Building of America, 1735 to 1817. Myron Magnet, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be with you. Well, it certainly was a pleasure to read your book. And, you know, I can normally say that because I, I enjoy reading almost every book that crosses my desk. But there was particular pleasure in reading your book because as you cover the American founding, you're covering the historical epic that perhaps has had greatest attention from American historians. And yet you found a way to tell the story in a completely new way. Thank you so much. You you liked my historical houses part, I take it. Well, and, and I will tell you uh, one reason why I get to live in one of those homes, or at least a, really? a replica oh, of one of those homes. You, which one? I actually live in, in a replica of Homewood, the, the home of Charles Carroll. Oh, of Carrollton. Oh, yes. how wonderful. Absolutely. And so Homewood, uh, the original home, is now on the campus of Johns Hopkins University, but uh, the president's home for this institution is an almost brick-for-brick brick replica Ah, that's uh, the most wonderful thing. And don't you find, I mean, what I found, the reason I wanted to write about uh, about the founders, the, the, the gimmick of the book is that each of the seven founders that I talk about has a house that's open to the public that you can visit. And what I discovered when I visited them is that the spirit of these guys just uh, is palpable. You feel almost as if you're in their presence when you walk in. It's especially true in a place like Monticello. Absolutely. Where, I, I, I mean, you know, I felt like I was inside Jefferson's mind when I walked through there, but it's true in Mount Vernon. It's true in, in the newly restored Montpelier, which is just beautiful. And, uh, and, and it just gets you so interested in the concreteness of their thought uh, so the, the the houses making them so real to me led me on to their letters and their speeches and writings and I was so fascinated to discover that this was a this was a country that was made by people who had a vision uh, who really you know really thought about what kind of country they wanted to make in which their fellow citizens could have the best possible life for, for man. And they had a very consistent vision, um, which centered on liberty. Mr. Magnet, another point you make in this book is, is how much attention these founders gave to the issue of religious liberty, uh, not just as one amongst other liberties, but as an essential issue for understanding what this new nation must be about. They cared about religious liberty, with a kind of intensity that it's it's it sometimes gets lost now. Um, it wasn't just the pilgrims in 1620 who came here looking for religious liberty. It's uh, you know it, there was a whole stream of people: Congregationalists, Baptists, Methodists, 
Quakers, every, every kind of dissenter, every kind of Protestant fleeing from France, from Bohemia, um, came in wave after wave after wave in the 17th and even into the 18th centuries, seeking religious freedom here. And it's so interesting, uh, what, the, the guy I start with in my book uh, is William Livingston, and I like him so much because he, he was a New York Magazine editor, so I feel we have something in common. Um, and it, it's funny, he starts out, he, in a, he, he's never sure exactly where he's going to go in his magazine, but he starts out complaining that, wait a minute, the Anglicans of New York want to, want to found an Anglican college, and they want to use tax money to pay the professors. So now that's, that's ridiculous, because New York is not an Anglican city or an Anglican colony. Um, the Anglicans are a minority. So obviously, if you use public money, it ought to be for the public purposes of all. Uh, and it's, it's an infringement of our religious liberty to tax us uh, for sectarian purposes for a sect we don't believe in. Well, it was that insistence on religious liberty that led Livingston to put forth for the first time in the North American colonies a, an unsystematic but extremely eloquent exposition of Locke's idea of government by consent of the governed and the right of the people to rebel against a tyrannical ruler. In your book, you claim that the American Revolution, of all great revolutions, was the only successful one. And uh, I'm in full agreement with that statement, but I, w I would appreciate if you would spell that out a bit in terms of why you wrote this book and why you made that claim. Oh, well, the reason I wrote the book is because I'm not a historian by training. I'm a, I'm a policy journalist. Uh, I ran a policy magazine. And I came increasingly to think that the country that we lived in was not really the country that the founders envisioned when they created it, and that the that the constitution that the constitutional lawyers have given us isn't the constitution that the constitutional convention gave us. Um, so I wanted to go back to the beginning um, and see what exactly did the founders have in mind, uh, and. And so it was a great voyage of discovery for me and just a thrill to spend weeks reading, say, 1,200 pages of George Washington's letters and speeches, um, reading the Federalist Papers and seeing what, what did they want to do. Well, I appreciated so much the way you made the point about the American Revolution being successful in, in that it delivered on the, the vision of those who led it uh, and fought for it. And you compare that with especially the French Revolution, which basically ended up with continued despotism and, and that at the cost of, of, of untold terror. And, and then the Russian Revolution that, that led to the Soviet oppression. And, and then you make the very interesting point that we only have one life to live. And if you imagine a life lived under those circumstances and compared to the lives that we live, 
you really see the difference that that the vision of this kind of revolution leads to. Oh, it's it, it's fantastic, and and of course, the reason that ours worked is very largely because the founders were quite modest in their aims. They only wanted to make a political revolution. They didn't want to make a social revolution. They didn't want uh, uh, to have common property. They didn't want to make a revolution in human nature. They weren't trying to build the new Soviet man. They were extremely realistic about human nature. They wanted to make a government, as they said over and over again, for people as they really were, not for angels, as Madison says in Federalist 51. If men were angels, we wouldn't have any need of government. He says, what is government but the greatest reflection of all on human nature? Well, by contrast, of course, uh, you know, we, we remember Robespierre of the French Revolution saying, have you rooted out the mental habits of despotism within yourselves? And, you know, his view was that if, if he didn't think you had, off to the guillotine with you. And they were guillotining them by the half a dozen a day for two years. You, know, you mentioned 200 people a week for two years, yep. an, an unprecedented bloodletting in terms of, of even those very bloody times. Uh, amazing. And then, of course, the Russian Revolution, you know, when we when we think of the toll of that, um, it exceeds even the carnage of the Nazis. So uh, once you start, you know, once you start overturning things, uh, you have to be very careful what devils you let loose. And one one of the really wise things that Madison said is, okay, so you set up a constitution and a government to govern people and give those who do the governing power to do so. But your next problem is how to, how to get them to govern themselves. Um, Indeed. And that was the genius of what the founders accomplished. They saw that the men who did the governing would have the same fallen human nature as everybody else, and they wanted to set up every kind of protection that they could think of to make sure that they didn't give in to the kinds of, of uh, as they would call them, uh, passions or narrow interests, uh, and use that power to oppress their fellow men. You know, you maybe rethink my understanding of of not just the founding era, but some of the intellectual changes that were taking place in the 18th century. And in particular, a point you make over and over again is that these conservative revolutionaries of which you were writing, uh, that these men were largely satisfied with the English Constitution as it had operated, that that unwritten Constitution that had basically – uh, ex- accepted rights and responsibilities, so long as Britain kept on uh, honoring that constitutional understanding, uh, the American colonists were by and large quite willing to live within that. It was when they came to understand that Britain was itself violating that compact that they really became revolutionaries. That, that's right. And, and what Burke said uh, is that the policy which Walpole and Pitt 
had followed when they were prime ministers of England was one of salutary neglect. Uh, here were these colonists 3,000 miles away who were churning out wealth for themselves, yes, but also for the mother country. So why would anybody mess with that? It's only when George III came to the throne. Remember, he was the grandson of George II. His father had died. And he was, the, he, was a, he was a youth. He was 22 years old when he came to the throne. Um, and he just wasn't going to take any orders from these old men who were around him. He was going to be a king by heaven, and that was that. And, uh, uh, and he, was, he, he, he was a very pig-headed young man and surrounded himself with not very, not very politic guys. Um, and he decided he was going to make the Americans pay for fighting the Seven Years' War, a big part of which happened on the North American continent. Well, you know, the Americans had already paid for it, not just in treasure, but in blood. Um, after all, that's where George Washington got his military experience as a, as a great and brave commander in, in what we called the French and Indian War which was the, our, our portion of the Seven Years' War. And why should we pay for it again? So uh, when George III wanted to tax people who felt they were not represented in the British Parliament, um, they said, wait a minute, you are depriving us of our property without letting us vote on it. And that's a violation of the British Constitution. It's a violation of Magna Carta. It's a violation of everything else that we hold most sacred. And then, to make things even worse, when the king decided that he was going to enforce these new tax laws um, by by sort of summary vice-admiralty courts that would try tax evasion cases, um, and that it would just be a judge who would decide, and there would be no jury. The colonists went bananas. They said, wait a minute. You know, the, the first thing Magna Carta guarantees you is that you cannot, deprive of your, you cannot be deprived of your life or your property without a trial by a jury by your peers. So it's like everything that they held most politically sacred in the British Constitution was being overturned yes. from their point of view, and they weren't standing for it. They you, wanted things back the way they were. You know, in your book, uh, and I enjoyed every single chapter, I have to tell you that uh, that you confirmed my estimation of George Washington, and basically, on the other hand, you confirmed my understanding of Thomas Jefferson <laughs> but uh, but you made me think far better of James Madison and John Jay uh, that, than I had in the past, and uh, you, you, your uh, argument actually even lowered George III in my estimation uh, <laughs> below where he uh, – in the abysmal uh, ranking of royalty where he stood before I began your book. But that's one of the reasons why I love this book so much is because it deals with these men as men, uh, with them as historical figures – and and you take them seriously, not only in terms of their intellectual contribution and their political lives, but their social lives, uh, what brought them pleasure, how they understood themselves as a part of a larger society. And you introduced me to one whose name was certainly familiar to me, but I really didn't know so well, and that's William Livingston. 
you identify him as one of the firebrands. And, uh, you know, that <laughs> argument that you just made uh, about the trial without jury, it was Livingston who quite brilliantly argued that there was only one British precedent for that, and that was Charles I and, uh, and the Star Chamber. And, and the and, Star Chamber, you that's know, exactly right. And uh, when he saw New York's royal governor um, trying to do Star Chamber-type things, uh, and then when uh, George III's government started themselves doing Star Chamber-type things, he, who, after all, had been trained as a lawyer and rose to be one of New York's preeminent lawyers um, and worked very, very hard with other eminent lawyers to professionalize uh, the law business, he just he just went ape when he saw that. He said, you're yes. taking away what is an Englishman's birthright, and he wasn't having it. So we owe quite a lot to William Livingston as, as being one of the... You, you know, one of the things that struck me in the reading I did for this book is John Adams is saying, when did the American Revolution begin? He says, didn't begin at Concord and Lexington. It began maybe 15 years earlier uh, when Americans changed their their political culture, really. Yes, um, it began in the heart. When they changed their ideas and affections and their idea of obligation, um, when they changed their loyalties. Um, and it really was because of men like William Livingston, even earlier than John Adams had said, this was in the 1750s when William Livingston began, um, saying, wait a minute, we have certain liberties um, that, the, that, that both the laws of nature and nature's God on the one hand and the British Constitution on the other hand guarantee us, and nobody can mess with them with impunity or we will have the right to revolt. Mr. Magda, in your book, you actually make a point without drawing any attention to it. And, uh, and I saw it come out uh, in, in a way that, that surprised me. Uh, even though I knew so many of these stories and thought I knew them quite well, you, you draw attention to something, but you don't mention it explicitly. And that is this. Many of these founders had their formative political ideas uh, shaped during the time when they weren't men, they were boys. And, and they were adolescents. Uh, it, it just strikes me when you consider the current social context with this extension of adolescence into the 20s and, and some argue <laughs> into the 30s. These were young men who were making life and death decisions and framing huge political issues when, uh, when they were too young to get married. Well, and take Alexander Hamilton as an example. There he is. He's a penniless, illegitimate immigrant from the West Indies. Um, who by almost a Dickensian set of fortunate circumstances ends up at King's College, New York, later Columbia. Um, and uh, Britain imposes the Stamp Act. Uh, and, uh, and, and, then, and then Lexington and Concord happens. So he's still an undergraduate. What does he do? He, he does his own kind of student activism. He quits college. He joins the militia and then the army. He becomes one of the greatest artillery captains of the whole Continental Army, comes to the attention of George Washington. He's, 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 by, the time he's, by the time he's 21, 
he's George Washington's principal aide. Um, and as as another one of George Washington's generals said, you know, it's he, he, he not only wrote the letters for Washington, but in a way he got to know Washington's mind so well that he even thought for him. George Washington would just throw this hint out, and Hamilton would write it out while he yes. was 21 years old. Imagine. Well, let me take you even younger than that. In, in your chapter on Livingston, you point out that he went to Yale as a 13-year-old and surrounded <laughs> by the library there as a 13-year-old began to revise John Locke in a way that served the American Revolution. Isn't it amazing? And even when he was younger than that, um, he spent a year living in the woods with his tutor, who was a Princeton clergyman, uh, was a Yale clergyman, um, and uh, learning about the customs of the Indians. So this was a guy who had had an astonishing amount of experience even before he went to college. I want to talk about the idea of this conservative revolution, because as you point out, this was a a revolution with a very limited set of aims, which is one of the reasons why it it ended up being so successful. Yes. And and these conservative revolutionaries wanted a society that would enable men and women to pursue their liberties and and in order to to build fulfilling lives. They, they, They understood human beings as human beings in a way that the other two revolutions we've mentioned, the French and the and the Russian, never did well because yes the 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 founders did believe with aristotle that man is a political animal but they understood that he's not just a political animal um and one of the things that always touched me about the letters that washington wrote is that he he had such a vision of of creating a world in which every american could live under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. And I just, I, I, I loved that vision. They, they had such a sense that uh, there was a kind of, of domestic, relatively modest life um, that people would make for themselves in their own families and in their own communities. Um, and that's where they would find their largest and most fulfilling meaning. This is something so different from what a man like Robespierre or from what Comrade Lenin would have thought of, um, that it just kind of takes the breath away. And, and you know, w- one of the things I liked so much about including the houses of these men as part of the story is that the houses themselves are really quite modest. If you and and they're and they're just made for domestic life um i mean go go to mount vernon and and uh, there's the parlor with martha washington's granddaughter's harpsichord in us um which was given back by one of her descendants who guess was guess who mrs robert e lee um and you, you can just have a vision of, of this company sitting in this li- little cozy living room, um, listening to Nellie Custis play the harpsichord. Um, and that's what they were fighting for. They wanted a life like that. Same with Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson was another great lover of music. And he'd play the fiddle, and his daughters would play the piano or the harpsichord along with him. And they'd sing. Um, 
what a nice vision of life that was. The title of Myron Magnet's new book is The Founders at Home, and the home, that is even the house, plays a major role in how he tells the story. That reminds me of the fact that that metaphor isn't new. It was Jesus himself who spoke about the wise man building his house upon a rock. And, and what we have is a recognition of the fact that we are indeed domestic creatures, and the house in which we live says a great deal about us, one way or the other, inevitably. Myron Magnet helps us to understand why we know these founders far better than we might because we know them at home. Well, indeed, and and it it not only humanizes these founders, who in many ways are marble men in terms of, uh, of our historical memory, but it also places them in a far healthier context in which it's clear they enjoyed dining, they enjoyed company, they enjoyed their family, they delighted in their children, uh, even if their children vexed them at times. Uh, <laughs> the, the, they enjoyed walking on their property. Here's, here's George Washington, the very day he dies, uh, walking, choosing some trees for timber. To cut down, that's right. He's still sculpting the landscape. It's it's the most amazing thing. No, they loved it, and and they loved it so much that when Washington was on the battlefield, um, in lulls between the fighting, he would fantasize about his wonderful house and uh, think about where could he plant honey locust trees and where would holly trees do well and should he cut down this stand over there and. Uh, it's 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 terribly touching, terribly touching, and it, it, it's also interesting that you, you know you 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 mentioned that I have a chapter about John Jay. Well, there, there really isn't a good biography of John Jay, and 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 this chapter I hope people will think is about as uh, about as good a one as as they're going to get of this most extraordinary and virtuous man. Um, and when he set out to build his house at the very northern edge of Westchester County, New York, he wanted just a plain farmhouse like his neighbors. And if you go up to the John Jay homestead, now it's been much enlarged in, toward the back um, by generations of very successful descendants of John Jay. Um, but you can, you can, from the front of it, you can see that it really is just this regular federal farmhouse of the kind that you see hundreds and hundreds of whenever you drive through any state in New England. It's just just amazing and all over New York. Um, and he said he didn't want a seat. He wanted a farmhouse, and that's what he got. But it is clear, and, and you helped to demonstrate this, that, that so many of these men, Jefferson and Washington and, uh, and to a lesser extent uh, Madison perhaps and, and the Lee family, they understood themselves in this new nation as standing astride history, and they were clearly trying to make a statement about continuity with classical truths and even classical patterns of architecture. With with Jefferson, with all these pattern books uh, drawn back from uh, from Palladio and uh, and 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 ancient uh, architectural sources, they were clearly making a statement about continuity with a, a oh, civilization yeah. they had brought with them. Oh, yes, and Washington had his pattern books, too. And actually, uh, Hamilton's house up in Harlem um, 
we we actually have the pattern book from which he took it. Um, it's the most fascinating thing to say. It's, and, uh, you know, it is a simply beautiful house. And, yes, it's filled with all these classical illusions. Um, and, by the way, with biblical illusions, you know, I, I if you look at the ceiling of Mount Vernon's new dining room, you see all these sickles and uh, pruning hooks and I'd like to think, wow, here's this warrior who stuccoed his swords into pruning hooks. Um, and uh, y- you know that when he was presiding over the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, he had a Philadelphia carpenter make the weather vane that was kind of the crowning touch on Mount Vernon. And what is it? It's a dove of peace with an olive branch in her mouth. So it's yes. it's a continuity not just from classical times, but from biblical times as well. You write of Washington uh, uh, following Flexner as the indispensable man, and you demonstrate just how indispensable he was. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I can't help but read that with a providential understanding of history. It's hard to imagine how how one man so well fitted for the times uh, could, could, have, could have been provided at just the right time. But you also humanize him. And so you point out that right to the end of his life, he's designing new military uniforms for himself because he loves <laughs> he to loves dress up clothes. in these uniforms. I mean, can you imagine here? Is, yes, the marble man, as you say, he loved to dress up. Um, we have a letter from him from when he was about 18 years old. Um, or 17 when he's designing a frock coat for himself. And up to the end of his life, he's still wanting tasty cockades for his hat and wondering if he should have slash cuffs or not on his uniforms. Uh, they were most human, most human people, and you can see it in their, you can see it so much in their correspondence. I mean, I, I, one of the things that, uh, there are so many touching letters, but uh, when Alexander Hamilton was killed in that terrible duel in 1804, uh, John Jay, who desperately loved his wife, who was William Livingston's daughter, and who had lost her at a very young age, wrote Hamilton's father-in-law, who was his good friend, a letter of condolence, And he said, you know, we all know the usual topics of condolence, um, so I'm not going to rehearse them here. I'm just going to hope that the only giver of comfort may be with you. But they were men of such emotion. Oh, and Washington, you know, the marble man, his hands shook at touching moments. He cried the scene when he... When when he said goodbye to all his officers at Sam Francis's tavern down in Lower Manhattan, I mean it's 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 almost unbelievable. All these guys came up weeping real tears um, to exchange a hug and a kiss with him and say goodbye. Um, and uh, he leaves the room. He's too overcome with emotion to speak. And what does he do on his way home to Mount Vernon? He stops off to call on Congress to hand them back the parchment commission, which they handed him as commander-in-chief of the armies eight years earlier. And he hands it back with a voice trembling with emotion and and with shaking hands. 
But of course, he's doing something that is profoundly symbolic, too, which is demonstrating the subservience of the military to the civil authority. And that George III, of whom we both formed so low an opinion, heard from the painter Benjamin West, who was working in in London and, and doing a lot of work for George III and his family, heard that Washington was thinking of just giving up and going home after his presidency. Um, and George III says, you know what? If he does that, he would be the greatest man who ever lived. Well, he did. Indeed. And perhaps George III was right that one time. Well, we'll give him that. Uh, I also <laughs> want, want, want to point out that, that you, you, you humanize these men in other ways as well. One of my favorite passages from your book is where you're talking about William Livingston and his wife, Susanna. They were married for many years, and after 40 years of marriage, when she had gone through 13 pregnancies, mm. he, he wrote to her, quote, If I was to live to the age of Methuselah, I believe I should not forget a certain flower that I once saw in a certain garden. And however that flower may have since faded, toward the evening of that day, I shall always remember how it bloomed in the morning, nor shall I ever love it the less, end quote. Isn't that not beautiful? It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen a husband yeah. say to his wife. Yeah. And yeah. When, when, you, when you treat these men and, and, and discover so many things about them, it, it is really interesting to me that you bring it back to a domestic sphere, it, and, and you do so with the more than symbolic reality of the house, and... I have visited at least five of the houses that you describe, and, and you. I have found, just as you did, the, the sense that you're walking amongst men and their families who were so real that, uh, that you can see even in the way they, with such detail, stipulated the way that a rug was to be placed in a room. Yeah. Uh, they were just as we are. They, they were concerned with making a life for themselves. You know, in that nice Livingston couple had famously beautiful daughters. And when they had retired to the house they built in New Jersey, of course, there was a steady stream of young men coming to call on the beautiful, beautiful Livingston sisters. And who were the people who came to call on them? Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, Governor Morris, can you imagine, I mean, just imagine what the, what the domestic life was like there. And Governor Morris writes such a lovely letter about Sally Livingston saying, oh, how her cheeks bloom when she's amidst her admirers, which she will always have around her unless the idea ever takes her to get into love. Well, she did, and she married John Jay. Uh, and they lived almost happily ever after. You know, in terms of John Jay, you mentioned there's not a good biography of him. Uh, I, I really was uh, was so pleased to read your chapter on him. And uh, one of the things I most appreciated was that here you have one of the founders who had, in a huge way, to change his mind. And, and you showed the adaptability of, of someone like John Jay to reality. In, in a way that ideologues would never have been able to uh, to, to adjust. And, and for instance, when he comes to the conclusion that America's future lies in what he doesn't want to see take place, and that is a union of the uh, or a cooperative agreement between the English-speaking peoples, between yep. the, the, the United States and the Britain against whom it had won this revolution, 
he makes the change, he, he exacts the treaty, and he comes back and delivers it. And, of course, defies all his instructions from Congress. Uh, uh, here here we had the, the financial and military support from the French, without which we couldn't have won the revolution. Um, but, you know, with, with classical American empiricism, um, John Jay is watching very carefully, and with classic, canny, hard-headed American understanding of human psychology, he sees that actually what France is doing in helping America has nothing to do with their love for America. It has to do with their own geostrategic ambitions in outsmarting Great Britain and becoming the preeminent global power. Um, and that what they really want to do is to keep America small, weak, hemmed in by hostile powers, and utterly dependent on France. And so as soon as he realizes this, um, and, you know, the French are a very subtle people, um, so it took considerable, considerable penetration for him to figure it out. And even so wise a man as Benjamin Franklin didn't see it. Um, so he says, okay, if this is what they want to do, I'm not letting them get away with it. And he then proceeded to make a treaty with Britain, which made our borders so much more expansive than the French ever dreamed we could get. Indeed. Um, that, you know, he, he, at that particular moment of the Treaty of Paris, uh, that ended the Revolutionary War. He was the indispensable man. You know, I, I was I, I had to uh, to smile when I, I considered the, the 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 politics of what was taking place when he and his his French interlocutor were uh, raising the issue of where the western boundary or border of the United <laughs> States was, and uh, they they agreed to come back and share their maps, and, and the French map was uh, well, let's just say. Uh, very much uh, to the French advantage. It, it, it would have been a different nation. There would have been no Midwest. And, and the people in the United States today often just take, uh, well, I guess this comes naturally, to, to take take for granted what we have as a nation w- without understanding uh, either the men or the ideas that brought it about. But But you are a very contemporary thinker, after all. And I'm a, a devotee, a, 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 an admiring reader of the City Journal, have been for many oh, years. thank you. And, and so you have very contemporary interests. So, so take us from the founders to today, and uh, and and what is it that that we are in grave danger of uh, of of failing to understand that would be essential for us to to know what America must be now as well as then? Well, let me start with a really small thing. Um, Madison said, if you ever see the legislators passing laws for the citizens from which they exempt themselves, you will know that you are living in anything but a democracy. Well, we've lived to see it. Um, These were guys who were so suspicious um, of human nature's propensity for I mean, for for they understood long before Lord Acton was born that power tends to corrupt. And so they did not wish to put very much power in the hands of any government whatsoever. 
They wanted a small government, powerful enough to protect them from outside aggression, um, from the English, as it, as it happened in, 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 in the, those first two times. Um, but that was it. They didn't want the government to do anything else for them. So in the Constitutional Convention, for example, Madison wanted to give the government power to build canals and, ro- and highways. Um, and uh, his fellow members of the con- convention said, that's going to cost too much money. We don't, we don't want to do that. I mean, if, if states want to build highways, they can do it. Um, but no, we're not doing it. Um, and so sure enough, Madison, on his last day as president in 1817, vetoed a bill that was going to have the federal government build roads and canals. He said, it's not that I don't think they're important, but if you want the federal government to build roads and canals, pass a constitutional amendment. Yes. Uh, because the power must come from the people, and the government is a government of limited and enumerated powers. Now, he said, you can argue about just where exactly the limits are, and you can argue just about you can ar- you can argue about what is necessary and proper to carry into effect those nineteen limited and enumerated powers set forth in Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution. And you know, and they had very ferocious arguments about that Hamilton and 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 Madison between them from very early on. Um, But the one thing you cannot do, said Madison, um, is convert a limited government into an unlimited government. And when you have a president who comes along and says, I'm going to take over uh, a sixth of the economy and a majority in Congress, a bare majority in Congress that says, fine, you can do this, and you can write a bill, and we're not even going to read it, and we're just going to ram it through by a bare majority. Uh, and incidentally, this isn't a tax, and then you have a Supreme Court says, well, wait a minute, yes, it's a constitutional law because it is a tax, and Congress has the power to tax. And then the president, by decree, says, well, wait a minute, this bill doesn't work because we made it so sloppily, so I'm going to... I'm gonna, change things by edict. Madison, Hamilton, Washington, John Jay, Jefferson, they would be spinning in their graves over this. This giant dictatorial government, which does everything by rulemaking fiat rather than by laws made by the people's elected representatives, that is not what the founders had in mind, and it's not the government that they created. Your newest book, The Founders at Home, has received a, a, a very warm reception in the publishing world amongst historians, and uh, I certainly want to commend it. But it leads me to ask you, because you've written so many things I've enjoyed reading in the past, what's next? You know, I don't know the answer to that question, um, but I never expected to write this book. Um, I went to Monticello um, just because my wife had said, 
come on, you're interested in architecture and you love the founding fathers and we've never seen Monticello and Mount Vernon and Montpelier. Don't you think it's time we did it? And I thought, well, that sounds kind of like fun. Um, and we went down there and I walked into Monticello and it was like I walked into Mr. Jefferson's mind. Yes. Um, I, I knew feeling. him and I thought, yes. I have to write about this. I have to write about this. Um, and then I played this tiny role in the, in the restoration of Hamilton Grange, which is just up the street from where I live in New York. Um, and, uh, I, I was trying to raise some money for the restoration and went to see one of my tycoon friends who said, sure, I'll help out. But you know, what you could do is write about it and, and publicize it. So I wrote another piece about a founder and his home, and I thought, gee, here's two of them. Um, I guess there's a book, and it's a book that will answer a question which has been bothering me for a very long yes. time, which is, where did we start from, and how did we get from there to here? Well, I found the book absolutely fascinating, and uh, Mr. Magnet, the well, only thing I would suggest is uh, your work isn't complete and your journey isn't finished until you go see Homewood in Baltimore, the home of Charles Taylor. Yes, You'll enjoy that way. one, too. Well, God bless you, sir. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. It is such a pleasure. Thank you. Myron Magnet's new book, The Founders at Home, will be of interest to anyone who's interested in the American founding era, in the intellectual foment of the 18th century, and in the men who largely shaped that story in terms of serving as those who would found the American experiment in ordered liberty. But they weren't just men. They were men and women. They were husbands and wives. They were sons and daughters. And the domestic context of the American founding era is something that has received much too little attention. And that's why Myron Magnet's book is not only so interesting, but so important. It arrives at a time when many Americans are thinking in an entirely new way about the domestic realities of our own time. And yet, here we have a very subtle but very clear affirmation of the importance of family, of husbands and wives and their children, of the establishment of families and the nurturing of those relationships, of the joys these founders had in their own homes with their wives and their children, and, as is the case in every family, there were vexations and joys mixed together. There were hopes and dreams. There were moments of joy, and there were also moments of great sadness, as was especially the fact during this founding era, there were so many children who did not live to adulthood or even to adolescence. There are so many other issues that Myron Magnet brings to our attention, as I enjoyed raising in conversation with him. The fact that so many of these founders had their founding philosophies and deep convictions arise in their youth, indeed in their boyhoods and in their adolescence. You have William Livingston going to Yale at age 13 and revising John Locke's understanding of liberty. You have George Washington losing his father at age 11, later remembering it even as age 10, as Magnet says, demonstrating just how traumatic the loss of his father was to young George Washington. You have George Washington attaching himself to his older brother, his brother becoming as a surrogate father to him. And then you have George Washington coming into his own at a very young age, first of all as a surveyor, and then as a great army leader, eventually an officer and a general. 
You also have a very frank depiction in this book, The Founders at Home, of the relationships between and among these founders. After all, he separates the book into those who were the firebrands and the Federalists and the Republicans. And to mention the Federalists and the Republicans is to mention two alternative understandings of how the American experiment in ordered liberty was to be organized. He also points to the reality of George Washington, that indispensable man who was president, found it far easier to demonstrate what the presidency was than to actually bring together his own warring cabinet over so many of the domestic issues of the day. Politics is a constant in terms of American life. Aristotle was right about that. We are political animals, but we are more than that. And Myron Magnet helps us to understand why we are more than that. And we are all the beneficiaries of the vision that he helps us to see in his book, The Founders at Home, The Building of America, 1735 to 1817. I think there's another issue that bears our attention here. So many academic historians have looked at the same people, looked at the same time, looked at the same founding era of the United States, and seen less, less than Myron Magnet saw in looking at this domestic perspective into their lives. That is not to depreciate in any way the academic study of history. It is to say that sometimes it takes someone outside the guild to see questions that have not been asked and to bring something as subtle as this domestic perspective to our understanding of the founders. As we understand, worldview is of crucial importance, and in the telling of this story, we see the worldviews of these crucial individuals on the world scene and in our national history come together. And we are the beneficiaries of the revolution they led, the revolution they won, the revolution they shaped, and the revolution, as Adam said, that was born in the heart long before it was won on the battlefield. Like every good book, The Founders at Home continues a conversation. It's a conversation I enjoyed sharing with its author, Myron Magnet. It's a conversation I hope will continue as you think about these issues on your own and as future authors and historians decide to come back to this era to consider some of the same questions and to tell us even more. Many thanks to my guest, Myron Magnet, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to invite you to join us on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on June 23rd to 26th or June 30th through July the 3rd for the 2014 D3 Youth Conference. Designed to develop students' understanding of leadership, worldview, and missions, D3 will set the foundation for discipleship and will forge friendships with like-minded Christian young people. For more information, go to events.sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Bowler.